Right off the bat here, let's be clear about my point. My point is this. Human consciousness is, at the same time as being a form of awareness and sensitivity and understanding, it's also a form of ignorance. Your ordinary, everyday consciousness leaves out more than it takes in. And because of this, it leaves out things that are often terribly important. Our sense organs are selective. They pick out certain things. They are receptive. For example, we have a small, small band of what you might call the spectrum of light, of sound, of tactile sensation, and so on, to which the human organism is sensitive to. But we know that outside that small band, there is a huge range of vibrations, to which we have built instruments that are sensitive. Things like cosmic rays, ultraviolet rays, gamma rays, hard X-rays, and so on. They're all outside the band of our spectrum. And obviously, there are things that are outside the range of our instruments. We may build new instruments someday, which will bring into our consciousness other orders of vibration altogether that, as yet, we don't know about. So you could imagine, you see, the universe as a vast, vast system of vibrations that has infinite possibilities. This episode is about one of those possibilities. Some years ago, when expense accounts and the inclination to spend them on me were much, much more generous, I was taken to a football game. Now, I don't really care about football, but I'm vaguely aware this is an important competition. Giants versus Green Bay. Green Bay had never lost a playoff game at home, yet the Giants ended up pulling out a win and went on to take the Super Bowl. Yay, whatever. Anyway, we were there, and the after party was chaotic. New York fans going wild and even some begrudging respect from the Wisconsin side. Suddenly, the CEO of the brokerage that invited me calls an audible. We're all going to Vegas. I pass out on the plane on the way over there, wake up in the Venetian. No one answers their cell phones, so I wander down to the pool and pass out again in the sun. Six hours later, I have the worst sunburn of my life. I'm all burnt up, and my head looks like a pumpkin. It's brutal. A few years later, my mother saw the photo and cried. There's still no one around, and no one calls me back when I try to reach out. I have no idea how I'm even supposed to get back to New York. My sunburn and cracked lips make me look ludicrous, like a fluorescent gollywog. So I hide in my room, taking cold showers and futilely slathering on moisturizer. Finally, the hotel phone rings, and my broker's like, Hey, we're leaving. Come downstairs. I wait an hour as people shuffle in. Let me tell you, the $5 blackjack table at 3 a.m. on a Tuesday is the place to be. Eventually, the whole lot of us are accounted for. The CEO doesn't say a word. Everyone takes their cue from him, and we head back to New York. Most of us in an uncomfortable silence. Honestly, the whole thing was such an embarrassment, I hadn't even given that excursion much thought since. Until last week, when I met someone else who was there too. It seems sort of odd I haven't run into someone who was on that trip until now. But an entire generation left Wall Street after the financial crisis. It's one of the reasons I don't write about Vegas much. The people who would help me recall stories have all just moved on. But here is one of them again at Madison Square Garden. Teddy. He looks both alive and gainfully employed. I notice him right as the Rangers score. A jealous part of me wishes I could be as happy as that sort of person. Explode with joy because someone poked a puck in a game where all the rules were made up. I always wished I could love something so unthinkingly. It looks like such a wonderful little bubble to live in. That belief that you're part of something bigger than yourself. As if professional sports cared. 
It doesn't give a damn about us, about anyone. It just is. I envy sports supporters the way I envy deeply religious people, for their blind faith. I will never be as important to anything as these people are to one another every time they are packed together watching a game. Even a few years ago, I would have thrown french fries at Ted until I got his attention, introducing the possibility of a scrap with some random punter. But this is a different time, and I'm a different man. So I plan my moment to reintroduce myself carefully. Catch him at an uneventful time in the game. Remind him of my name, when we knew each other, where we last met. But there's no need. All he requires is a moment of recognition. And then he throws his arms around me in greeting, spilling beer down my back, and cracking my left shoulder a bit. I'm instantly accepted by his crew, and an hour later, we're at a local bar talking shit with each other. But I have an agenda. What happened in Vegas? What was the lowdown on that Vegas trip? And the lowdown, according to the rules of our particular social game, is the one thing you mustn't know. That's really not allowed. The lowdown, on the one hand, means the real dirt on things. But the lowdown is also what is profound. What is mysterious? What is in the depths? Our everyday consciousness screens what is left out in the same way that when you say you have weaving. You have, say, on this rug here in front of you. When the black finishes here, the black threads will go underneath and then appear again over here. Then they'll go underneath the white and they'll reappear over here, you know? So that the back will be the obverse pattern of the front. Now the world is like that. It obscures more than it reveals. And what I want revealed is what happened in Vegas. Ted tells us he was a junior sales trader back then, that he shouldn't have been on that particular game. It was for senior executives. But a few clients had canceled, and he was just high enough in the food chain to make the cut. He planned to keep a low profile, try to build a rapport with some buy-side guys, and just enjoy the football. And everything was what you might call normal until the Giants unexpectedly win, and his CEO goes totally bonkers. Pulls out a bag of Coke and just sticks his nose right into it there and then. He'll never forget the sight of the CEO's eyes dilating and the expression that came over his face. A master of the universe at the peak of his powers, surrounded by important clients and an army of employees exploding with testosterone from the playoff win. What would you do if you could do anything? And just like that, it's on. We're going to Vegas. His assistants totally freak out, while we cheer, order shots, and a couple hours later, we're on the move. At the airport, Ted sees me slumped over in a chair looking a little confused. He starts up a conversation, and it's unclear I know exactly where I am or where we're supposed to be going. The safest thing seems to be to bring me with him, so he helps me onto the plane, and I promptly pass out in the back. As he walks up to his seat, he sees his head of human resources, let's call her M, situated next to the CEO. Some would think it's strange to bring cops with you to Vegas, but the best of us back then knew that the girls in HR were degenerates too. This is confirmed at cruising altitude when M and the CEO renew their memberships to the Mile High Club. Ted uses this as his cue to get some shut-eye and wakes up in Nevada. During the flight, most of the group kept up a steady pace of drinking and drug use until they became too addled to cause any real damage on arrival. As the junior trader, Ted also has to carry a couple of unconscious clients up to their rooms. Soft, he thinks, as he dumps me on a bed. 
Tay gets a quick nap in himself, and when he wakes up, he knows it's going to be a long day. And the best way to beat a hangover is to not get one. So he heads straight to the pool for what he thinks will be a relaxing start of the day, which it won't be. One of Ted's position traders is already at the pool. Let's call him Lee. He's a classic ex-rugby-playing Neanderthal and has a wine bucket full of Bud Lights next to him. Half are empties. Lee is going through a rather expensive divorce. However, it was an expensive marriage to begin with. And he'll be the first to tell you that marriage gets better the closer you are to death. Anyway, after 10 years of equestrian training at 100k a year, his daughter announced she's quitting to focus on dismantling the patriarchy. Great. As he sees it, he now has a million dollars for 10 years of hookers, cocaine, and a mild gambling problem. For all his vices, or perhaps because of them, Lee is well-connected and gets us a reservation at a pretty famous steakhouse, which he caveats with, Bro, I eat a lot of meat, and a steakhouse is probably not going to throw us out before dinner. Do whatever you want there. Next thing Ted knows, he's on Lee's tab, double-fisting frozen margaritas, and chatting up a cougar from Orange County who leans over to ask them, It's only three DUIs, and I'm a good person. Don't I deserve to drive? He makes out with her for a bit just to shut her up, and after a few more rounds of drinks with tequila floaters, passes out before 10 a.m. Around 3, he wakes up to M standing over him. First time in Vegas, rookie? Yeah, he slurs, says he's holding up pretty well. She calls the waitress over, arranges to have Gatorade and food sent to his room, then banishes him from the pool. Ted wakes up surprisingly refreshed, smokes some weed, tries not to pull a Bourdain while rubbing one out, then walks down to the steakhouse. Ted tells us he always goes out a load down before a big night here, thinking you should never let a Vegas chick find an easy nut. Almost immediately, he discovers Alex at the bar. He's a senior trader. Comes across as a southern gentleman, but a deviant through and through. Ted posts up next to him and throws back a tequila as a 40-something pro approaches Alex. You like to party? Yeah, I like to party. Great, let's go upstairs. Sure. That'll be $300? Whoa, ma'am, it's too early for that. I'll tell you what, I'll give you 40 bucks for a handy in the bathroom, and I get to stick a thumb in your ass. Ugh, you're disgusting. I'm disgusting? You take dick for a living. Before things can escalate, Lee and the CEO arrive with a maitre d' and we head to our table. A few senior colleagues join. They've been playing roulette with $10,000 chips and are now arguing we should just stay where we are. That clubs in Vegas are a waste of money. That if you start drinking at midday, it doesn't matter how much cocaine you do at 10 p.m., you're just a mess. Ted's not a huge coke guy. And to escape the sound of their teeth grinding, he excuses himself to the bathroom for a quick toke. He sees Alex and the hooker from earlier talking. Intrigued at what her going rate can be negotiated down to, he swings by to overhear she'll bang him if he can just find her coat. Alex is like, fine, give me your coat check ticket. Ted shakes his head and heads to the bathroom to smoke weed. Sure enough, two minutes later, Alex barges into a stall next to him with the hooker. It's actually pretty difficult to screw in a toilet stall. Even the pro seems to be having trouble making it work, especially while dodging a thumb in the ass. Eventually, they settle on him getting a beach, but she says she needs some weed before doing something like that. Without a pause, Ted passes his one-hitter over the top of the stall. What's that, she says, and Alex replies, the hand of God. 
As Ted washes up, a security guard bangs on the door. Says patrons can't smoke in the bathroom. And the last thing Ted remembers is Alex saying, Excuse me, sir, she has AIDS? Fast forward and we're all sitting at the $5 blackjack table waiting to head back to New York. Alex walks in sucking his thumb. He's missing a shoe. His clothes are all ripped. He has a black eye and scratches all the way down one arm. Everyone wants to know what happened, but all Alex will mutter is, fucking Asians. One of the Korean hookers happens by and says, you want a fucking Asian? And Alex is like, okay. And that's how we left a man behind. Ted looks me in the eye as he finishes up the story. Hey, he says, you really don't remember anything about that weekend? Well, innocent is good, but either way, saying nothing is better. Ted tells me he actually prefers people to be guilty. It takes the pressure off. One of Ted's friends takes over and begins to weave a tale about a Montreal bachelor party. I'm a little more aware of how life swirled around me back then. Good story, I tell Ted. I hope I'll see you again. After a while, his crew gets back to complaining about the Rangers, and I head to the bathroom. I take a critical look at my sun-damaged skin in the mirror. Decades of hard living stare back under my eyelids. Our strongest memories tend to be from our 20s. As we enter middle age, we often compare the adult world we are entering with the world of our youth. And for one reason or another, we think the world as it exists today comes up short. The pervasive dread of getting old in our culture has led to an almost complete silence about the experience of being an adult. It's terrifying to live in the shadow of death, as though one were already very old. And it is a self-defeating illusion to live in the shadow of our youth. What to do about something like that? Hmm. Deep thoughts for a dive bar. I go back for another beer.